This episode of LedgerCast is brought to you by Brave New Coin. Go to ledgerstatus.com slash BNC to check it out today. Specifically, check out BNC Pro. This is a brand new tool. You can join the waitlist today. That's the number one thing I would like you to do today. Go to ledgerstatus.com slash BNC and join the waitlist for BNC Pro. BNC Pro allows you to easily manage all your crypto activities. It's a secure and unified suite of applications where you can research and chart, screen, analyze, report, optimize, and much more. Uh, it's like almost like a Bloomberg terminal for crypto. Uh, that's my words, not theirs, but it's really awesome. I've had a chance to play around with it, check it out. It's going to be uh, really all-encompassing, whether you're an institutional trader or a retail trader. Uh, check out BNC Pro. Get on that wait list, ledgerstatus.com slash BNC. Thanks so much to Brave New Coin for being a Ledger Status partner. Hello and welcome to LedgerCast. My name is Brian Krogsgaard. I'm here today with uh, Jake Travinsky. He's the general counsel at Compound Finance. Before he was at Compound, he was uh, one of my go-to lawyers on anything crypto related and just been a, a great person to follow in the ecosystem. Hey, Jake. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure and I appreciate you coming on. So you're a lawyer and you say in your profile, but not yours. So obviously we can give the disclaimer right here at the beginning that nothing that you're saying today is uh, you know, specifically legal or financial advice for anyone. You're just giving us your take on various topics in the market, right? Yes, I appreciate starting out with that. Um, <laughs> you're right. I, I am a lawyer, but not yours and not uh, probably anyone in the audience unless you're listening. Um, and also, I should mention, like you said, I'm general counsel for Compound, um, but nothing that I say here represents the company, just my personal thoughts on what's going on in crypto. Yeah. Well, I want to not dig too much into all of your background, but I do want to know um, what what gave you the, the confidence or the desire to jump into um, the legal profession in the crypto space? Was it just because you liked it so much that you wanted to get involved directly with your profession? Or how did you make that decision? Yeah, pretty much. So I um, I came across crypto a few times over the years, but I didn't really dig into it until I would say early to mid-2017. Um, and I did that honestly just as a personal passion, just in my free time. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating and uh, went down the proverbial rabbit hole, just like most people do, uh, and really never thought that I would do work in the industry. Or, or really having at all. Um, but like most people, I was getting my information that was going on with the industry from crypto Twitter, um, which is a, a very wonderful place with a lot of <laughs> uh, great information and great resources, also a lot of uh, other stuff going on. Um, but what I realized as I was just hanging out on, on crypto Twitter was that pretty much everyone who had a stake in the industry, everyone who's doing some pressing was there. And they were asking questions about, but there were no lawyers who were answering those questions. So I think the first time I decided I wanted to start tweeting was when there was a discussion about the Vanek Bitcoin ETF in the middle of last year. Uh, and there was just a lot of confusion about how the SEC's evil process actually worked and a lot of really smart people who just didn't have understanding of it. So I just jumped in to explain, hey guys, here's this gap in understanding law applies to this space. And really, the rest was history. It's a sort of caught on from there. And, and that's how I uh, first jumped in. Did you primarily work in uh, finance from a legal perspective before? Or were you outside of anything money or finance related? So I uh, spent most of my career in private practice doing what you would probably call white collar criminal defense, 
uh, or a government oh. enforcement does. Awesome. Yeah, so I, I missed up- that. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, toward the end, I was doing a lot of securities, but mostly government enforcement. A lot of work facing the SEC, the Department of Justice, the CFTC agencies. Um, and so all of my cases had some element of finance to them. Uh, for example, I spent a lot of time doing investigation to anti-corruption and anti-money laundering issues. So a lot of that has to do with understanding fence and how assets move around the world through the global financial system. Um, I also did some financial services litigation and worked for some other companies. Um, so I was around finance, but I was always a litigator. So I was dealing with active disputes or investigations, not transactional or corporate type work. So I was around finance, but not exactly dealing with those kinds of issues like you might. Yeah. Uh, well, let's dig into the ETF stuff a little bit because, you know, conveniently enough for us, it's quasi back in the news. But as you noted, in a very weird way, um, what first of all, with regards to the ETF non-trading perspective, but just from a, a, a thing existing perspective, like what was the big what were the big misconceptions that you saw back when you felt? compelled to like start talking about what it actually meant, what was actually going on? Yeah. So at the time, the big question was when the SEC was going to make a decision about the proposal from Vanek to launch a Bitcoin. Uh, And I think people just didn't understand how the SEC goes about this decision. So when you look at the statute and also the SEC's history handling ETF app, what you see is they have exactly 240 days from the day the proposal is filed uh, and first published in the Federal Register to make a final decision on whether the ETF approved or denied. The thing is, over the course of those 240 days, there are a bunch of intermediate steps where the SEC gets to decide that they want more time or they want to ask some questions about whether they should or shouldn't approve the ETF. And so it looks like they have a 45-day deadline from the initial proposal until they have to make a decision. So what happened, I think it was uh, middle of last summer, maybe July, is we were coming up on that first 45 days. And what happens pretty much every time there's one of these ETF applications is that the SEC delays and delays and delays until the very last minute they have to make a decision. And that it it, it only goes to, to reason that they do that, right? There's no reason for them to rush to make a decision on something controversial like a Bitcoin. So at the time, all the traders were thinking, hey, we've got to take whatever position we're going to take long or short assuming that we're getting an approval or a denial on this specific date. And I just jumped in to say, hey, guys, that's not how this works. We're going to wait for at least another uh, you know, 180 days before we get a, an answer to this question. Uh, and so that was sort of the first thing that I started. So very specifically, I remember this because, and Josh and I have talked about it on the show, because we were actually together in D.C. doing a live show. It was the first time we hung out and met, and we were walking down the street when this news came out. And, uh, you know, whether whether it was truly denied or not, the delay was enough for a significant uh, reaction from a price perspective to the news of the ETF. So, uh, you know, despite you being a voice of reason in that saying, hey, this is a totally typical delay, it didn't necessarily translate to the market, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there is a lot of misunderstanding about the process. It seems like every time we get to one of these deadlines, you have the group of people who think, ETF approval is imminent. Everyone go all in long right now, right? And then you have the people who say, no, we're definitely going to get it. And I think it just helps to understand what the factors are in the backs of the minds of regulators who are making decisions and to look at their history of how they go about making those decisions. I think that's really helpful when you're trying to predict what's going to happen with the ETF 
and then with the market based on. So before we get into what they've put out here this week, um, what is the status of a Bitcoin ETF right now, whether through Vanek or through others? So there are two uh, proposals that are coming up for a final decision in October. So we're about six weeks away. Uh, the Bitwise Bitcoin ETF is actually the first one up for a decision. I think that's on October 13th. And then the Van Eck decision comes right after that. I think that's on October 18th. So we're coming up on that final 240-day deadline where the SEC has to say, these ETFs are approved or they are denied. So that's our real price day, our real, our real yeah. day to decide. Right. I mean, there, there will not be another delay, at least for this round of proposals. I think it's worth noting that in essence, a denial is like a delay, because if the SEC denies these ETFs, you know, what are Bitwise and Vanek going to do? They're going to take a few weeks. They're going to polish up their proposals. They're going to file them again. We're going to start this whole thing all over. It's the Um, SEC saying that there's not, it's not a compelling enough proposal to approve. It's not to say it can't be compelling enough to approve at a later date. Exactly. And, and if, and when they deny these ETFs and, you know, we can get into what we expect them to do. I do think at this point that those proposals will both be denied. Um, But if they are, and when they are, the SEC will write an order explaining exactly what the issues and why they felt they'd not be at this time. Uh-huh. And that gives the ETF sponsors an opportunity to go back, make tweaks, make improvements, and then try again. And I think ultimately we will get an ETF someday. It's just a question of how many years and how many rounds of these proposals go through before we get uh, a final. So I participate in legacy markets. I see some pretty bad ETFs out there. Um, in your mind, what is really holding them back from just having a Bitcoin ETF, like it doesn't seem to me that crazy different from some of the other ETFs that struggle to match their mandate or like whatever they're trying to mirror. Uh, For instance, one that comes to mind is like a uranium ETF. It's not like it even necessarily has direct exposure to like all the small uranium companies. It might have equipment suppliers and like random stuff in there that, you know, it's like a little loosey goosey from what it's says that it's supposed to do. What is holding the SEC back, giving them caution towards, you know, approval for a Bitcoin ETF? It's a really good point. And I think it it underscores the fact that the SEC isn't trying to approve only ETFs that are good investments or investments where people will buy them and only make money. That's not the SEC's. The SEC's job is to make sure that all of the rules are being followed. And the big rule that's been a problem for approving a Bitcoin ETF has been Exchange Act Section 6B5, which is a provision under the federal securities laws that says ETFs can't have rules that allow for fraudulent or manipulative acts or practices. And ultimately, when you're trying to get an ETF, really what you're doing is changing the rules of the exchange to allow the ETF. And so what the SEC has been saying for quite a while is we can't allow an ETF that holds Bitcoin to be listed on an exchange because we're concerned about the amount of market manipulation, not on the exchange that would list the ETF, but on the underlying spot and derivative markets where Bitcoin is actually priced. In other words, let's say that the New York Stock Exchange has an ETF holding. You could, in theory, manipulate the price of that ETF by going to the underlying markets, like let's say BitMEX or Binance or wherever you're getting prices for Bitcoin, manipulate the price there, and then that'll have a manipulate on the New York Stock Exchange. So what the SEC is saying basically is we need more insight into the types of manipulation that are going on on these spot and derivative markets where Bitcoin priced. And until we know what's going on there, we're not going to approve an ETF uh, to be listed on it. 
So I imagine this is why Bitwise, for example, is publishing things like their real 10 volume things, like those types of reports, because they're trying to put clarity towards where actual volume or actual trading activity is occurring and trying to give it more legitimacy, I guess, on those exchanges? Yeah, that's the idea. And I, I mean, I think what Bitwise did was really interesting. So for those who don't know, um, Bitwise, as part of their most recent proposal, said that they can analyze all of the trading volume on these underlying exchanges, and they can figure out which exchanges have legitimate trading volume and which ones are manipulated. And that by excluding all of the ones that are manipulated, you can get a real solid price for Bitcoin by just looking at those legitimate exchanges. This is a way to try to get around what we all perceive as fairly significant market issue in the underlying markets. But, you know, remains to be seen how the SEC is going to respond. Yeah. And so a couple of events especially stick out to me. Well, one fact, one event. The fact is they missed the elephant in the room. And I tweeted about this at the time. It was like, hello, there's like BitMEX that has 10 times this amount of volume, but it's a derivatives exchange. And they just acted like it didn't exist. That was one issue. And then number two, and it's married, but it's you take an event like what happened with uh, Bitstamp and BitMEX, where someone was clearly manipulating Bitstamp as an underlying index to play shenanigans on BitMEX. Um, it's like, fodder for the SEC to point towards and say, look, you guys don't have it together, so therefore this isn't going to work. Am I, what, what, what are your thoughts on those types of scenarios? I, I, I think you've got it right. I'll add a couple things to that. And before I do, let me just say, uh, I know the Bitwise guys. I think they're great. I think they're doing the best they can with a tough situation. So none of this is to say that they're doing a bad job. Uh, it's just a really hard problem. So I think there's, there's two things to add here. One is, even if you can find what you might call a legitimate price for Bitcoin, that doesn't necessarily solve the SEC's concerns about market. The SEC doesn't want Bitcoin to be unmanipulated. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, you mentioned uranium. It is entirely possible there's some manipulation in the uranium markets. We all know there's manipulation in precious metals markets, right? This isn't about eliminating all manipulation. It's about making sure that the SEC can detect and prosecute manipulation when it happens. Or if it's not the SEC, some other government agency with the right amount of regulatory to catch people when they are manipulating the markets. The problem with Bitwise's strategy is what they're saying is, look, here are these exchanges that have legitimate volume, but the SEC still doesn't have insight into the trading going on on those exchanges. So I think one of the ones Bitwise includes is Bitfinex, right? So it's all good and well to say there's no market manipulation or there's little manipulation on Bitfinex, but that doesn't mean Bitfinex is going to cooperate with a government investigation into something. So I think that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is a lot of this has to do with perception, right? Yes, there is the technical rule that I cited for you that the SEC is saying prohibits an ETF from getting listed. But the truth is the SEC is also making a, an instinctual choice that they don't yet want to give their stamp of approval to the Bitcoin markets. And it's a problem if what you're trying to do is convince the SEC, look how mature our market is, uh, look how liquid it is, you can trust it. To simultaneously say to the SEC, we've done a really, really good analysis and we figured out that 95% of trading in Bitcoin is fake, right? That's the reaction the SEC has is they say, okay, 
fine, you've identified these legitimate exchanges, but many more of them are not legitimate, and we don't want to give our, our stamp over this market while it's functioning this way. Isn't that giving a little too much credit to the coin market cap types of the world who will just list any uh, you know dumb exchange reporting some volume that's fake? Like they're legitimizing that 95% more than anything else, right? Like, do anybody use these websites? Are they, or are they just lures to try to catch, you know, like some random dumb rich person willing to deposit a bunch of Bitcoin and do do stuff on their exchange? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think it does give too much credit to those exchanges that you know they're in the top ten on Coin Market Cap, and none of us have ever heard on them. Heard of yeah. them, right? And none of us would ever trade on them. And Bitwise did a good job in their explanation of saying, "Yeah, I you learned know, here's a lot this random." Of how yeah, to detect it with the order books and stuff. Right. Um, and so I think the research they did was fantastic. But if you put yourselves, put your put yourself in the shoes of someone at the SEC in the division of trading and it's who doesn't really understand this stuff that way, and you only have so much time to explain. And most of their day is spent on traditional markets because crypto is still very small. Uh, they might not go through that exercise of really figuring out how to differentiate those exchanges. And as long as there is so much manipulated conduct, so much wash trading, so many red flags for them. It's just easier for them to say, look, we're not going to approve this yet. And 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 the last thing I'll say about this is you have to also put yourself in their shoes in terms of thinking about their incentives. What does the SEC have to gain from approving any? Who is pressuring them to approve any? Who is lobbying them to approve? How will their careers suffer if they don't approve, right? All of the incentives that they have, many of them come from the legacy finance industry, and those folks are not pushing for ETF approval. So that's why you have to understand a lot of this is about uh, persuasion and less about hyper-technical legal analysis. So at the end of the day, is there anything really specific other than it's easier to say no versus say yes to make you think that they will say no in October? Um, I, I think that they'll say no for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, there hasn't been enough progress on the market manipulation issue to get us over the main requirement that the SEC has said we have to get over. They've said this over and over and over, which is they want surveillance sharing agreements with a regulated market of significant size, right? Break that down into three separate things. A surveillance sharing, there are very few of those. And what those look like is an agreement between the ETF sponsor and underlying exchanges that the exchanges will share trading, as in who is entering trades, what trades are they entering, how long are they keeping them open, which are getting executed, how fast are they getting killed, all of that type of information. Exchanges really aren't sharing that type of So I think you're lacking surveillance sharing events like the SEC wants. They want them from a regulated market. There basically is no such thing as a regulated in crypto, right? right? There Unless is no federal. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, you <laughs> know, it's interesting because so. Gemini will tell you in marketing that they're regulated, but the truth is there's no federal agency with regulatory authority over spot markets, only derivatives, right? The CFTC has some authority over derivatives markets. No one has regulatory spot markets. So there is no regulated market, really, to have these agreements with. And then the last piece of significant size. What the SEC wants is enough agreement so that if someone wants to manipulate the price of Bitcoin, they would have to go on one of those exchanges that is sharing trading data in order to manipulate the prices. So I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I would say you can probably manipulate the price of coin if you have enough money by just going on BitMEX and Binance. And those two exchanges are not entering surveillance sharing agreements with VanEck or SolidX or the exchanges that are trying to get yes. So because of that, I think we're not over 
the main marketman challenge. So that's why I think it's just going to take. More. Yeah, thinking off the top of my head, I think I think Coinbase and Gemini would be all over it. I think um, depending on the incentives and what type of information they have to share. This is me speculating. You don't have to join in. Uh, it may be a little harder to convince the Krakens and the Bitstamps of the world. And then it gets significantly more challenging when you talk about uh, Bitfinex or Binance uh, or or particularly the derivatives exchanges. And I think maybe it's because they all, they all realize that the more they open up, the more they open themselves up to various liabilities or additional requests or rabbit holes that regulators may want to dig down that they don't really want to to be party to. Uh, so yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think there's there's exchanges are are basically separating into two camps. There's the exchanges that want to do business in the U.S. and by and large, they're working as hard as they possibly can to make readers happy with them. Uh, Gemini is one of them. They talk about creating their own self regulatory organization, the Virtual Commodity Association. Although it's gone sort of quiet recently, but there's some effort from these exchanges who want to do business in the US to create these types of events and a regulated market that would satisfy the SEC. Then on the other hand, you have the exchanges that are fleeing the states. And by and large, I think there's more of them than exchanges that want to stay here. Yeah, absolutely. And the ones that are trying to stay here or like they want to stay here. So they're doing so in, you know, some degree of good faith. Like I look at uh, Circle, the stuff they've gone through with Poloniex. I've looked at uh, Bittrex as they've made changes that are more uh, regulator friendly. It's like customers are running away. <laughs> if the exchange doesn't run away, the customer runs away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's hard for them. And then then you have Binance, right? And Binance is sort of doing both at once. They're taking the, the traditional, the main exchange out of the US and then launching a new Binance US which seems like it's going to be sort of like a segregated exchange that doesn't connect to the main dance. Yeah, um, you know, I want to get your take. Work. I want to get your take on that because I, I am quite uh, I, I'm bearish on Binance's opportunities in the U.S. for actually making headway with regulators because I don't think you can be like, hey, here's my left arm, it's U.S. friendly. Here's my right arm. I don't know what's going on over there. You know, like that's a whole different thing. But they're both called Binance. Like at the end of the day, you know, stuff goes to CZ and CZ's live on Twitter and crap uh, talking about everything. And can they really pull that off? Can they truly act like they're separate entities? Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to spend too much time analyzing someone else's regulatory strategy because there's a lot we don't know about what's going on behind the scenes. And to some degree, we just have to wait and see what they're able to make happen. But I think I think you make a good point that the exchanges trying to get along in the U.S. are losing customers. And the question is, who is going to use Binance U.S., right? If you're not in the U.S., you're going to stay with the main Binance trading platform, right? That's right. where the liquidity is. That's where the assets are. That's probably where you are. If you're in the U.S., why are you using Binance U.S. instead of something else, that's tried and true, like Coinbase or you know maybe Kraken or Gemini or Bitstamp. You know, pick your pick your U.S. based exchange. Um, so I think it remains to be seen. What concerns me, uh, and this is as far as I'll go. Um, what concerns me is that Binance's strategy they have called regulatory arbitrage. That's sort of a loaded term, right? It sort of sounds like an intentional strategy of skirting the law as much as possible and getting away with it because you're not going to show up. Or the regulator for them to then come to the U.S. with that reputation, and also with a business model largely based on just listing every asset under the sun, doing uh, listing ICO tokens, and then later do IEOs, 
uh, doing their own token, right, BNB, which I'd be very surprised to see that trading on Binance US. The question is, what is their US market? I, I don't have that. Whether you're an enterprise fund manager or a retail trader, buying and selling cryptocurrencies successfully requires price discovery you can rely on. Brave New Coins Liquid Indices provide trusted US dollar prices for Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple. Featuring end-of-day or intraday outputs, you can count on the BLX, ELX, and XRPLX for accurate US dollar pricing for smart contract oracles, settlement price discovery, net asset valuation, and performance analysis. Visit bravenewcoin.com to find out more. Yeah, and that was exactly my own thesis when I... I actually wrote a short thesis for BNB. There was a uh, Ari Paul's company did a trading com- competition or a uh, investment thesis competition. I submitted it because I had been wanting to get my thoughts on Binance out of my own head. Uh, I lost. Or I didn't win, rather. <laughs> and uh, but now I've been starting to talk a little bit more about what my own thoughts were on it, and uh, I've been of the same opinion. Like once you once you take out all the things that Binance would have to take out to be truly a Binance US, you end up with Coinbase to me. Um, and I don't understand what their advantage is going to be in that in that scenario. I won't make you speculate too much more on that. Um, I think maybe one thing I'd like to ask is, do you think there's a path or like uh, any, any sort of way forward where US traders can get the type of products that they en- that they can enjoy in an unregulated market or that non-Americans tend to enjoy. Things like access to futures, access to margin, um, without being accredited or without uh, going to particular institutions. Is there any path forward for that uh, in your mind? I think there is, depending on the asset. Um, for Bitcoin and Ether, because we know from the SEC that they're not securities, or at least the SEC has taken the view publicly that they are not securities. I think that solves a lot of right. So you can have these exchanges that we have now uh, creating spot markets in Bitcoin and Ether and other digital assets that we're pretty sure aren't securities. So like Bitcoin Cash, if you have some reason why you want to play around with that, uh, or Litecoin, etc. So we're going to have, I think, pretty good markets and, and already for those commodities that are definitely not securities. It gets a lot harder once you subject yourself to SEC jurisdiction, because if you're going to trade digital assets that are securities, then the SEC is going to tell you, you need to be a licensed national securities exchange or alternative trading system. And up to this point, the SEC has not allowed a single exchange to register under either of those two types of classifications. Um, the securities issues apply not only to trading in the actual security tokens themselves, but also for derivatives on those securities. So if you want to trade, for example, a swap on a token that you know is a security, the swap becomes a security-based swap, also regulated by the SEC, also with a whole bunch of different regulations. So I think for those assets, it's going to take a really long time. And if you're in the US, it's going to be really hard to get exposure to those assets. Um, On the Bitcoin, Ether, commodity side, we're seeing a lot of market infrastructure for people to get access to all those kinds of exotic financial instruments. So we've had futures on CME for quite a while, cash settled futures. Uh, Backed was just finally approved to list physically settled futures contracts. I think all of that infrastructure will get built out. It's just going to happen for the commodities first and the securities after. And for some of those, there would be access for more like retail participants. Because personally, my gut tells me that your average American trader is 
would would openly go towards somewhere that will allow them to do similar stuff. Like if you have a uh, options market, for instance, that's available to a retail trader, that I think they'd go for it. Um, or a you know the ability to use some degree of margin for a retail trader, I think they would go for it. But right now, those are really hard markets to find if you're an American, and therefore they go to the places where they can do it, where it's not regulated. Right. Yeah, and it, you know it only makes sense, right? When you when you disallow conduct in the U.S the biggest effect you have is just pushing that conduct overseas. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, I do think that BACT is uh, is a promising sign. You know, the fact that we finally get end-to-end regulation for physically settled futures contracts for Bitcoin, that's the start. Uh, I think that we will see all of these other types of options and swaps and everything else you could ever want to get built out afterward. But it's a slow process, right? This stuff, very slow. To Final question on the... ETF front is the physical settlement stuff. Is that a big deal in terms of what you think will end up being a part of a Bitcoin ETF? Um, it could be. I think. I think uh, there's a couple ways it could help. So one way is right. We were talking about surveillance sharing agreements with regulated markets of significant size. Well, BACT is going to be a regulated for the purposes of that. If you actually see significant size on on meaning a lot of people are trading there, the volume is high enough that we start pricing Bitcoin based on what happens on BACT's platform, and then BACT is willing to enter one of these surveillance chairmans, well then yeah, maybe someday you get an ETF based solely on the the volume, um, you know, surveillance sharing agreement. Uh, is that realistic? I don't know. We'll have to see sort of how things develop. This was tried with the CME and SIBO cash settled, right? So last year, mm-hmm. uh, one of the ETF proposals said, we're going to price based solely on this regulated market on CME and SIBO. Yeah, and the no. SEC basically said, yeah, there's there's no volume there, right? All the trading is happening elsewhere. This isn't big enough to to make the cut. Um, so yeah, it's just you know wait and see type of. And honestly, I felt like that was probably better for Bitcoin in the long run because uh, settling in cash like hurt a lot of the point. <laughs> like it's kind of like what are you actually trading there? Uh, yeah. If, anyway, okay. So now, as a footnote to this, Vanek has this marketing spiel that they came out with where they said they're doing a limited version of a Bitcoin ETF, but it's basically the same thing, according to you, the same thing that Grayscale's had for a long time, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. It's uh, there, there is one key difference, but in essence, Vanek and SolidX are launching a private investment trust, which is really just like a company that holds assets. Uh, they are then going to do a private placement of shares, meaning uh, they're issuing equity and they're going to sell that to accredited investors. And all of the assets of the trust will just be big. So by buying a share of the trust, you're getting exposure to underlying Bitcoin. Um, and that's more or less how the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has been operating for six years. So, you know, it's been interesting to see all these media outlets report this as a quote unquote limited ETF, which is a totally made up term, not an yeah. actual type of regulated uh, financial vehicle. I've never heard of a limited ETF before. Uh, you would assume that if it's a limited ETF exchange traded fund, one of the requirements would be trading on an exchange, uh, which the shares of private investment trusts. Um, so I, I think it's a little bit uh a little outlandish to call this a limited ETF. It's still interesting. Um, and I think they're trying to solve one problem that Grayscale has now, which is 
uh, how much of a premium is on mm-hmm. shares of Grayscale as compared to. So I think there's like a 35%, something outrageous on Grayscale as compared to Bitcoin. The reason for that is Grayscale has issued a certain number of shares for its trust. It does not issue or redeem those shares. So the number of shares stays the same. So as underlying Bitcoin value fluctuates, the price of the shares fluctuates uh, sort of out of relation to the, what Van Eck is going to do is allow, at least what they say is open-end creation and redemption, meaning they'll issue new shares and they will redeem shares uh, in a sort of ongoing fashion. So in theory, this will get you a more accurate price for their shares as compared to Bitcoin. But again, we'll see if that actually works. And either way, it's not an easy. Okay. Sounds good to me. Uh, that also makes sense. I mean, I think there's a there's benefit to that product. I just don't know why they market it that way other than for headlines. Yeah, and I should say, I'm actually not sure if Van Eck called it an ETF or if it was the Wall Street Journal that came up with that term. <laughs> Somebody did that. But however, it, however it came to exist, literally everyone in crypto today is calling this a limited ETF. I'm sure we'll have forgotten about this in a couple of days, but yeah, that's yeah. that's the frustration. Of- I'd like to dig in a little bit with you about um, smart contracts and uh, everything that's kind of going into the world, which you've entered. We won't talk about it from a compound specific perspective, but um, what are what is the Ethereum community? If I think you pay attention to, like, what are they looking at in terms of the regulatory components of DeFi, if you will? Yeah, so um, I, I hesitate to speak on behalf of the Ethereum community. Uh, I'm, I think I'm. Barely a member of the Ethereum community since I, I <laughs> tend to be more of a Bitcoiner. Although I guess I'm one of the few people who's willing to say that I'm interested in both. So um, go figure. But um, the big question right now, I guess there's a uh, one is we're still working through this question of when and whether digital tokens are securities regulated by the SEC. Um, it seems pretty obvious, and it, it always has, that if you issue a token for the purpose of raising funds to build a network that does not exist at the time you do the sale. And you promise people that they'll make money if they buy your token, because you're going to do a really great job of building that network. You've issued a security. Um, This happened hundreds, thousands of times in 2017. The interesting thing is we're still very slowly working. uh, The SEC settling enforcement actions with those. And it's going to take, I think, a lot longer before we have some clarity about when a token issuance qualifies as a security. So we've got litigation in the courts about this. Um, the SEC has what I would call its centerpiece regulatory action against Kick. Um, that's going on now. Uh, there's also some private securities class actions addressing this question, Ripple and Tezos uh, and some others. So I think that's still a big question that we have to... Um, I guess the second big question is... To what extent are developers of software regulated based on smart contracts running on a blockchain that they no longer? So we all talk about decentralization a lot. Uh, We talk about how many benefits it has, how it's better than centralized versions of the same type of service. And it's still going to take a while to figure out at what point is a system sufficiently decentralized to steal that from the SEC so that the company that created it should not be regulated. And I think we're seeing similar issues now to the ones that we just discussed with exchanges, where you have companies that are trying to build these really interesting new systems, not having any idea how US regulators are going to look at them, and as a result, are moving 
to other countries just to get outside of U.S. jurisdiction or blocking U.S. customer services. So I think those are um, the two biggest and most pressing questions. There's a bunch more, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, when I think about the way that some of this works, like any network, there's always this concept of governance involved. And that's also what's going on in any company. But with a company, like if you talk about centralization, what makes something centralized is that governance is basically from a singular head, right? Versus a whole bunch. Do you have any idea in terms of the definition of uh, (laughs) decentralization or like this decision making process is split amongst enough independent entities in order to kind of define itself as decentralized versus centralized? Um, I don't. And I don't think anyone really has a good answer to that question, including the regulators for that matter. Um, And I think that's why we talk about this whole space, a regulatory gray area. And I actually think to some degree, there are different voices within the agencies that we expect to regulate this industry that disagree with each other about what level of decentralization is sufficient so that the regulator shouldn't be looking at a certain type of smart contract or platform. Um, and, and, you know, that that goes beyond just the securities questions, right? That also goes to the CFTC looking at margin trading platforms or uh, FinCEN in the Department of, in the Treasury Department, uh, looking at, uh, you know, wallets, right? Custodial versus non-custodial wallets and ATMs and all of these types of questions. So I, I really think it's uh, it's still open for interpretation. And I think we're really waiting for the regulators and to some extent, the politicians as well, to figure out how they want to handle issues and also get their level of understanding about the technology up to a point where they can make really good decisions. And I, you know, last thing I'll say about this is I actually give the regulators a lot of credit for taking the time to be thoughtful and not to rush into making bad law or making bad decisions. Uh, We've seen on the state by state level, some statutes that define blockchains in very unusual ways, right? They talk about blockchains as being a source of uncensorable truth or something like that. And I think that just shows if you move too fast, you make some bad decisions. And so I think it's good that we're taking this uh, slowly. Do you have an example of a state that's made good, like relatively uh, good decisions versus bad decisions, or maybe if it's not even full on decisions, but just like their general approach has been pretty positive versus a state that has been suspect? Yeah, the uh, the gold standard, or I guess the Bitcoin standard uh, is Wyoming, right? Wyoming mm-hmm. is doing, I think, really great things. Uh, in terms of how they're changing laws to support the industry. Um, Led by Caitlin Long, another lawyer who really understands this space. Uh, You know, she was on Wall Street for 22 years and really gets, uh, you know, some of the issues, the challenges, and also the opportunities, and has been very successful. Some other politicians in Wyoming on board. So they, I think, are making really great strides. Um, Their goal, if I understand it correctly, is for Wyoming to be essentially the Delaware of the crypto industry. Right. So basically every corporation in the U.S. is incorporated in Delaware. Reason being, Delaware has really good and very clear laws and standards for how corporate governance issues and disputes. So you go to Delaware because you know what you're getting. And I think the idea is you'll go to Wyoming if you're a crypto company because you know what you're going to get from them. Um, It's still very early days and some of those laws are still 
coming into effect now. So we'll have to see how that works out. But I think what they're doing is very interesting. Yeah. So for example, like I think one of the ways, one of the things you have got to do if you're going to join Y Combinator is you have to be a Del- Delaware registered corporation because like everyone advising you and everything, they, they know how Delaware works. So you're, mm-hmm. you're saying Wyoming's similar. It's like, we know how Wyoming works and therefore uh, that's that they want to be a hub and it enables them to potentially be a hub. Um, would you say like the way New York, for instance, is that heavy handedness that they've put down with crypto? Do you think that that is going to give them more headaches in the future? I think so. I, I, I mean, I think that's a lesser example of when you move too fast and make law about a technology that you don't fully understand, right? So they came up with the bit license framework um, several years ago before we really knew uh, how this technology was going to play out. I think we still don't really know what it's going for and what we use it for. Uh, and the results of the bit license framework is, again, driving conduct to other jurisdictions. Just in this case, it's other state jurisdictions as opposed to other countries. But there's a lot of companies out there that just don't want to do business in New York because they don't want to deal with the headache of that regulation. Um, I guess there's two ways of looking at it. One way is what I just said, right? Moving too fast, pushing conduct to other jurisdictions. Um, In that sense, it could be a mistake. I think the counter argument to that is... Um, maybe we shouldn't be playing around with people's money before we really understand the best way of doing it. And from the government's perspective, they want to have insight what's going on before they approve it. So I think they have some good arguments for why they did what they did. But um, my personal view is I think that the rollout and enforcement of the bill license framework has been definitely heavy handed. I think that's the right term. And I think New York is realizing that now. And they're starting to dial it back a little bit. We're seeing more bit licenses granted. We're seeing more um, pro-innovation and pro-industry language coming from the New York Department of Financial Services. So I think they're starting to get the message, changing their approach. If I uh, beg you to answer, would you say your best guess is that XRP is a security or not? Um I'm not going to answer, <laughs> uh, and not only because I, I don't want my uh, notifications destroyed by the XRP <laughs> army as soon as this comes out. Look, I think uh, if you read the most recent consolidated complaint in the securities class action, um, you will see a very strong articulation of the argument why XRP is a security. Not just was a security at the time it was created, but still is a sec- very strong the truth is, though, nothing is or isn't a security until either the SEC decides that they want to pursue it as a security or the issuer of the security treats it that right? This is really what we mean by a regular grayer. No one treats XRP as a security, right? Ripple hasn't registered it with the SEC. The SEC hasn't launched an enforcement action against Ripple. None of the disclosures you would expect from a registered security are being... So for all intents and purposes, as we talk now, XRP is not a security because no one's treating it. So really the question is, will XRP eventually come treated with a security? And that would require me to uh, make some some wild guesses and look into the crystal ball of what Ripple is going to decide, what the SEC is going to decide, what the judge in the class action might decide. Um, And if you've had any experience with the US legal system, you'll know uh, crazy things can happen, right? So you could be 100% certain that XRP is a security. And the plaintiffs could still lose the case because the judge decides something that you think is crazy and vice versa. You could be sure that XRP is not a security, as many XRP army people are. 
And you could still be surprised by what you would think is a terrible decision. Um, but that's how law is made. And that's why I think it's probably unfair for me to say. Do you think that there's merit to say to the argument that the SEC has not gone after a very large, huge uh, company with a big war chest because they know how much more time and energy and effort it would take to uh, win in that scenario relative to more low-hanging fruit, whether that's scammy ICOs or more blatant examples of uh, illicit activities or illegal behavior, whatever you want to call it? Uh, that's my theory, yeah. Uh, and and that reflects how the government usually goes about uh, their enforcement strategy when they're dealing with new types of conduct like this, right? They don't start by shooting for the biggest, best-funded uh, you know, company that has the best lawyers already. They start with the and the small former Bit license uh, creator. Yeah, and look, I mean, say what you want about Ripple, but they hired Ben Lasky, who essentially drove the Bit license process. They hired a former chair of the SEC. They hired a former director of enforcement for the SEC. They've hired two very well respected, very expensive law firms. Uh, you know, they're doing this the right way. They are mounting as strong a defense as any possibly could. Um, so for the SEC to say, we have no controlling case law on this issue. We know that we are playing with novel, unresolved legal questions, but we're still going to go after this company that's going to spend tens of millions of dollars to defend this case against us. That's just not what they're going to do. And that's why we see them going after these small companies, really easy for, to negotiate a settlement. Uh, and then you see them go after Kick, largely because Kick challenged them to go after them, right? Kick yeah. published, publicized the entire uh, Wells response, right? Is the back and forth between the SEC and over whether there was a violation and how it'll get negotiated and resolved. So the SEC sort of had to take action. But I don't think they're in a rush to launch these very large, very expensive enforcement actions. Yeah, uh, that makes sense to me. I think the warning signs maybe would be uh, if the SEC takes action against kind of another layer up, like someone that <clears throat> looks like Ripple, but they're not Ripple, a little e- little lo- smaller war chest, little, uh, you know, a little easier battle than, than Ripple, then maybe start getting concerned that they're they're working their way up. Yeah, I mean, that, like I said, that's normally how it works, right? You start with a low-hanging fruit, you establish some good precedent, maybe you get a couple of judicial opinions that support your perspective, and then you work your way up. I will say that's not necessarily how it's going to go, right? We don't know what's happening behind closed doors. For all we know, the SEC is just busy building its case against Ripple and tomorrow they're going to decide to launch an enforcement action. So I just want to I just want to get that out there because you can't discount the possibility of being surprised by the enforcement of the SEC. No, that's my show title, right? Jake uh, Trapinski <laughs> predicts ripple enforcement action. Oh man, please no, please no. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, what do you think are tomorrow's technologies that uh, you know, like we're working our way into within this ecosystem that have even newer, scarier, hairier frontiers of legal uh, concerns that need to be dealt with? Um, So I think that where we're going is back to the DAO. I mean, I think the DAO at the time that it was first launched was sort of like the most innovative, most interesting thing that you can do with a blockchain that you really can't do through any other type of system. And if not for the fact that it had a fatal flaw that allowed a hacker to steal most of the ether out of it. Um, I think we would have spent a lot more time in the last couple of years 
talking about and thinking about DAOs and how they change the way that we organize and cooperate across borders. So I think that we're going to get into some really interesting legal questions about how DAOs work, what they really are, and who's responsible for their actions. So there's one theory of DAOs, which basically says DAOs are, are not a new thing. Um, this is, this is the, there's nothing new under the sun view of a lot of jaded lawyers who don't really want to think about innovation. They just want everything to fit into their current world. And what they'll say is a DAO is just a partnership. It's a partnership of all of the voting members of, the, and every one of them is liable. Anything the DAO does just like they would be in a general. That's a really interesting theory. If true, it would cause a lot of problems for the ideas that folks have about using DAOs to solve these kind of governance. Um, so I think that's probably as far out and as crazy as we're about to get. Um, but I, I don't want to undersell how much there still is to figure out with what you and I would now think of as the vanilla application of crypto, right? Which is uh, transferring value uh, almost anywhere for almost no cost, almost instant, without any third party being required and without a government censor. We're still very far from figuring out the legal ramifications of just that introductory sort of most basic use case. And then I think between that and DAOs, you have uh, what the DeFi space is, is working, or at least what we think of as uh, the DeFi space, which is um, providing the same types of characteristics for more exotic and complicated financial. So instead of just Bitcoin, where you're transacting value, right, I'm sending you uh, an asset that stores value. Um, we're doing things like creating pseudo lending or uh, creating exposure to derivatives or leverage or things of that nature. We're, we're sort of building out all of these more exotic pieces of the infrastructure. And that raises a whole bunch of really interesting, but tough. Do you have an example of just I've j just one from the DeFi space of like the type of question that it brings up. Um, because I mean, obviously, if you think, um, you know, a lot of people in the Ethereum community and the DeFi space, they're saying, okay, well, if Bitcoin is money, you know, Ethereum can be the banks, but banks are highly regulated. So if you're saying we're replacing some of the functions of a bank, like lending that you bring up, what are some of the underlying responsibilities or liabilities that are pinned on those networks, organizations, foundations, however they're structured? Yeah, well, so I'll give you, um, I'll give you one example that I think captures this pretty, which is um, margin trading platforms that are decentralized. Uh, so and I'll, I'll allow them to remain nameless just so that no one gets upset with me for talking about this. But uh, there are DeFi companies that allow you to do what looks very much like margin trade through a decentralized in a traditional sense. That would be regulated by the CFTC. No question about it, right? The CFTC has regulatory authority over retail commodity transactions, meaning trades that are made on a margined financed or leverage basis. So the question is, does the CFTC also have jurisdiction over a company that launches a margin trade where the platform itself is being executed on chain by a bunch of miners? And the company that launched it has maybe some control over it, but not the type of complete control that CME has over its platform or BACT will have. And so what is the role of the CFTC in regulating that type of platform? I think that's a, a really interesting question and not one. That so could an example of that be that someone, uh, just to scale it back, let's say it's Ethereum 
And Vitalik is not in control of Ethereum, but what he says ends up being um, a large influence on the direction of Ethereum. That's so. You're, what you're saying is like, what degree of responsibility does an individual in a network have like that, even if it's not responsibility on paper or like ownership on paper? Right, and it, it goes to it goes to the spirit of the law, right? It goes to the policy behind why we have regulation over something, a margin trading platform. The reason is because it creates a couple of different types of risks, both for the users of the platform, but also for the the economy in a broader sense, right? Margin can create systemic risks. And so in the traditional sense, the reason you have regulation is to make sure that the company running the platform is doing so in a responsible way. They're making appropriate disclosures to all the people who are using the platform. They're running the platform in a way where it's technically functioning the way that they're telling people it's functioning, making sure margin calls are being done correctly, all of this kind of stuff. You take that policy art and apply it to a smart contract that is autonomous and self-executing on a blockchain, right? And you have to ask the question, how do those regulations make sense if there is no one making those decisions? There's no person making the margin call. And the way that the platform functions is on a blockchain open for everyone to see, right? All of the code is open source. It can be audited. It can be seen by everyone. And also, if you try to regulate the company that launched the smart contract and they don't have control over it anymore, what is the point? You cannot get them to change anything in the system. So regulating them would be uh, essentially null and void, right? It would be a pointless exercise. And we tend not to spend time and money uh, in the regulatory world on pointless exercises that have genuine. So, you know, these are sort of the questions we have to through in figuring out, is there something really different about decentralization? Or on the other hand, is this really just decentralization theater? And there are companies who are talking a good game about decentralization so they can avoid the regulations that really honestly should apply to them, just like those regulations in the traditional. So this is the kind of stuff we have to do. Do you think, to finish on this and to piggyback off what you just said, I don't have a great example in the in the world we just were talking about with more of the smart contract side of things, but I'll use Zcash as my example because I feel like a lot of people understand that project. It's obviously, it's a cryptocurrency. It's not uh, you know some kind of platform for smart contracts. But do you think there's sustainability long-term in the model like what we see with Zcash and we also see with you know Tezos and a whole bunch of other projects where they say, oh yeah, here's a company, the electronic coin company or whatever they call themselves now. And here's the Zcash Foundation. And by the way, these things are very different. And one of them controls the governance of the way this network operates. And one of them is just providing some support or like whatever. You know, they got all these weird lanes that they say they go in for these different organizations. Well, you got Zuko or whoever at the top of each of them, basically, at the end of the day. Is that kind of model where on paper you have all these different chains, lanes, etc., where people fit? Uh, do you think that's sustainable or do you think there's real risks there legally for the people that choose those kind of duopolistic models? I don't know if yeah. I used the right word there, but I did when I'm proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I get you though. Um, look, I'm skeptical, honestly. Um, it definitely looks peculiar. There's no question about it. It doesn't strike anyone, I don't think, as a natural type of corporate structure to have two different companies, one of which is a nonprofit in Zug, Switzerland, uh, that you call a foundation that is issuing the token, and then another company in the United States that owns the intellectual property, for example, I'm sort of describing 
Tezos very mm-hmm. um, owns the intellectual property for the blockchain that the tokens are being issued. Uh, and then you have sort of peculiar fundraising. And when you look at this holistic, it kind of looks like an end run around the securities laws, for sure. Um, and it raises also some sort of similar questions to the ones of DAOs. Who is liable for the decisions that are getting made? And you have these two different organisms, two different places, sort of doing two different things, but also working on this. So I think that as a whole, we have to approach this skeptically. However, that doesn't mean that it's not going to. And there are indeed a lot of types of corporate structures that to us now are totally normal, absolutely the way that the world works. No one asks any second question just because they've been shown to be effective loopholes. And so the fact that it looks peculiar doesn't mean necessarily that it's not going to work. It just means that we need to pay a little extra attention to make sure that um, that it makes sense. And I think in a in a perfect world, instead of having to sort of maneuver around the laws in this way, it'd be better to just get some new legislation that explains how these things ought to work in the best and most effective, um, and then do it that way as opposed to game playing in, in this in this way. Um, but legislators move very slowly, and so until we get something like that, I think we're going to see a lot more creativity and innovation from the legal side as opposed to just the engineering side. And, and that's not a bad thing. My gut tells me that uh, you'll have work in this space for as long as you want it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, being a lawyer in crypto is, is definitely job security. So. Awesome. Well, if you're struggling to trade and you happen to have a legal degree, then you know which lane is for you. Uh, not that I'm saying you're struggling to trade, Jake. I think you just took a wise path is all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, thanks. Hey, so people can keep up with you at Jay Travinsky on Twitter and then y'all's website for Compound is compound.finance. I would love to talk to somebody at Compound just about DeFi, somebody that uh, you know won't necessarily just come in with a legal hat, but will help explain DeFi stuff to me because that's a world that I'm still trying to figure out and, and wrangle. Um, but I'm glad to see that you're there. I know they're in good hands with you as general counsel to keep them out of the woods. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, where else I, should I'd people go? Where else should people go to keep up or or follow along? Um, I think that's pretty much it for me. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Happy to hear from anyone out there. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I'm I'm a big fan. I've been listening for a while. Um, I I do trade a little bit just for fun, and I think that you. Uh, and Josh both are are some of the best in the game, so I appreciate to hang out with you. For- yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. I always come away with uh, any conversation I have with a lawyer with just as many questions as answers, but I always feel a little smarter, so I appreciate you uh, giving that to me today. And we'll catch everybody next time. My pleasure. Take it easy. Hope you enjoyed that talk with Jake, and don't forget to go to ledgerstatus.com slash BNC to check out BNC Pro. Also, while you're there, you should subscribe to their newsletters. They're really great. I read them every day, and there's also a weekly summary if you prefer that. Thanks so much to Brave New Coin for being a Ledger Status partner, and we'll see everybody next time. Monuments crumble in the blink of an eye. The easy river has just run dry. In a house of cards. I feel the breeze Wound so tight I can barely breathe